Greetings, reader fans. Welcome to episode 18 of Data Slate. Now, we've been away for a long time, but we're back. And we're back with a slightly different format this time. So, Data Slate is going to have quite a lot of different voices, which should be really great. We're going to have a lot of different guests. We're going to have a lot of different people talking about books. If you remember us from before, we're your book review show where we cater to the discerning spacefarer, fantasy adventurer, or even ghost hunter who's prepared to put their feet up and tuck into a story or two whilst exploring the galaxy, a haunted house, or some dragon's dungeon. I'm your host, Alan Stroud, and on this episode, we'll be talking about some of the latest news in science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And then we'll be moving on to our selected reading recommendations. So for this episode, joining me is Kevin Elliott, blogger from Where's My Flippin' Tea, and author of science fiction novel Lightmaker. Hi, Kevin. How are you doing? Hi there, Alan. Uh, yeah, good to be here. Great. So what have you been up to recently, Kevin? What have you been doing? Many things. I've, I've done a fair bit of reading. A book I'm going to talk about tonight, which is uh, uh, The Fated Sky. So I'll talk about that in a bit. I'm also working on the sequel to my novel, Lightmaker, and uh, looking at making some changes. I've done a lot of plotting there, which I didn't do for, for Lightmaker. Lightmaker was pants, but uh, it, the sequel is more plotted out. I've got the plot sorted out. You've obviously been very busy. So this evening, we're going to talk a little bit first about some of the latest news and some of the things that are going on. Now, obviously, with the the current lockdown situation, however it's kind of working for you where you are, if you're in the UK, then you'll know that the situation seems to change pretty much day to day. And what we're doing uh, is pretty unclear at the moment in terms of what guidance we're given at different times. Some of the information tends to be sort of backwards and forwards. But one of the things that's been affected quite drastically, and certainly Kevin and I have had some experience of this, one of the things that's been affected quite drastically is conventions. Now, usually during the sort of spring, summer, we have a bit of a convention circuit in the UK where, particularly with books, We'd start off with some of the smaller conventions, and then you have EasterCon, and then things would kind of move into the summer, and you'll have some of the, the larger things going on. And then we have FantasyCon in the UK, usually in, in sort of October time. And we're just at the stage right now, mid-October, where FantasyCon would usually be happening. So it's been a bit of a miss in terms of it not being there in your, your list of things to do over the period. So it's certainly interesting in that some conventions have chosen to cancel and some conventions have chosen to try to move online. Now, one of the things that we did this year with LaveCon, we went to a volunteer-based online weekend. We had quite a few people come on and do different things. And Kevin, you did a reading. I did a reading. Um, other people did other activities and stuff. And, uh, you know, it, it was an attempt to try and still bring people together. But some conventions have chosen just to cancel, and they're hoping to, you know, to resume next year. I had a bit of a discussion with another podcaster, and we were talking about how the online nature of things now everybody's kind of getting used to maybe using zoom or using you know different online providers how that's going to change the convention scene going forwards so i just wondered kevin what you thought your your sort of take on this was how you've found things to be over this last year has it been very different and what do you think is going to happen to conventions in relation to their their online provision things have been incredibly different if I can go off on a slight tangent for a bit, I'm associated with a very good writing group in Oxford, Oxford Writing Circle. We would just gather and uh, people read stuff out, all genres. We would give feedback and so on. We'd have um, writing sessions or we'd just go to a pub, have a few drinks and just sit and write and chat. Now, we can't do that because of the pandemic, but what we have done is meet up on Zoom. Zoom meetings are better in some ways in that we can share Google documents around rather than having to print them out. People who have been pillars of the community who have then moved away have been able to come back. And we've had people coming from Japan and Nigeria and the United States and all over the place. So that's been good. In some ways, it's not as good in that you miss the chance to have a quiet chat with someone and break out and have a two or three of you can 
discuss whatever. What I see happening in the future, hopefully, I work at Oxford University and I'm told that uh, research into the vaccine is going actually quite well. So I'm hopeful next year we can, maybe from March, April, May time, we can start going back to real world meet space meetings. I'm hoping that we can keep some of the good aspects of online events going, maybe have some televised sessions at LaveCon and FantasyCon and, and uh, EasterCon, Worldcon, whatever, so that people who can't make the journey can, can arrive and that we can have two-way conversations there. So hopefully we can keep the best of the best of the new and leave the, the, the worst of the new, combine the best of meet space meetings with the best of virtual meetings. That's my hope. Certainly it's going to change. We're going to have to find our, our way next year if the, if the virus is knocked on the head. I'm broadly hopeful that we're going to find a way that's at least as good as 2019. Hopefully with a, a little sprinkling of technology on the, on the top to improve things. Yeah, I think that's a, a fairly fair assessment, really. I do think that conventions have probably got to make that adaptation. They've got to bring online into what they're doing. The reason for that is because so many people have now had to adapt. They've got used to the idea of making use of some of these different tools. And frankly, it gives you the opportunity to kind of expand your audience because there'll be a variety of people similar to your writing group where you know, you've got people who can't come across. You're going to have a variety of people who they would not be able to, to attend a convention, but they're able to, to drop into an online event. So finding yeah. a way to cater for that and sort of expand your brand, as it were, I think is, is really important. And it, it's definitely, a, you know, a, a strong consideration going forward. The only thing I think that could be a problem is trying to determine value because if you're offering an online ticket, you know, you've then got to control how people can access the online discussion. You know, you've got to find a way to kind of control that. And then you've got to create, it's got to, it's got to be valuable in terms of the, the fact that they've been able to access it and they wouldn't be able to access it otherwise. And that value has got to be kind of set against the value of attending. So you would suggest that an attendance ticket would probably be your most valuable ticket and then your online access to maybe some, you know, some one-to-ones or a, a small discussion group with an author or something like that might be a ticket that you'd have as an alternative that's not quite as valuable. And then you would think that actually just having a few interviews or something that are, are streamed, you know, providing access to that would be, would be sort of the tear down. And I'd, I'd suggest that that last tier is probably going to need to be free because if you don't have some of the, you know, some of the convention as a shop window, you're probably not going to get these new audiences. They're probably not going to come across. Sure. In terms of self-publishing, there's a thing called a reader magnet. I've put up some short stories, uh, which I'm trying to, to persuade Amazon to, to put up for free. You can get me for signing up to my uh, website. That's a reader magnet. So how do you entice people in? And they think, oh, that was good. Let's, let's go and get hold of the novel. That's the idea anyway. Maybe you need to think in terms of reader magnets or, or uh, audience magnets, some sort of maybe a yeah, pre-recorded show to start with, maybe edited highlights from last year's real world meet or something. I don't know if that exists for Navecon. So that be, might be one way to, to gradually increase the uh, spread. And because a virtual ticket would be sort of very, not much limit on the number of, of tickets you can sell if a thousand people wanted to come to, to Navecon, well, the, the venue we use couldn't hold that number, but virtually that would be no problem. So there might be a monetary advantage there in you know, selling tickets for 10, 20 pounds. And uh, if that brings in, you know, a thousand people, you, you, you're maybe uh, really helping your balance sheet there. Yeah. So, I mean, Lavecon's kind of a little different in that quite a lot of what we do in the main hall content is streamed and that's streamed for free. So we, you know, we do allow that. Whereas if we get a request, for example, I think a few years ago when Dave Lowe had finished the Orchestral Frontier theme, the request was that we could broadcast it to the audience in the in the room, 
but we had to mute it online because they didn't want it recorded. So, you know, so that was that was fine. So, yeah, so, you know, so we would have content that isn't streamed and some of the panel rooms obviously aren't streamed. But it does tend to be that, that certainly computer game conventions, they've adapted. They've, you know, they've, they've been using sort of streaming and online platforms for a while because that, you know, they're kind of used to the tech and actually a fair amount of the crowd are quite used to that that sort of technology anyway. So, you know, that's fairly straightforward. But, it, you know, the book conventions, the the fantasy cons, the, the Easter cons of this world, the other conventions that are run elsewhere. I don't know if you went to Long Con when it was on uh, several years ago. It was 2013, I think. When Long Con was on, they experimented with having a podcast room. And it was kind of a bit of an anomaly. It was a bit of a, really? Is that what you're doing? You know, and, and there were a few people in there. Ed Fortune from Starburst magazine was in there, I, I know. And they... They were doing stuff and it was, you know, they were they were sort of pushing stuff out. And there was a little bit of it as well at Nine Worlds that year and the year after. But um, it was very much off the, the back of somebody being enthusiastic as opposed to the convention going, OK, we're going to embrace this as part of the, the content that we're delivering. So it'll be interesting to see how, how people adapt. But I think it's going to stay. I think it'll be a change for, for some conventions. It may be, in a way, you need to also think about providing value for people who do turn up in the real world. And so it seems like a heart back to Mavecon, we had the, I think it was the Ambassador's Dinner for Ken, which gives a chance to eat food and, and chinwag with people in a way that isn't quite yet possible with a virtual setup. So you can just turn to the guy next to you and have an impromptu conversation on whatever. So it's always worth playing that value to make sure you, you can that. Uh, get boots on the ground buying the uh, real-world tickets. It might also be worth looking at some of the other computer game and high-tech exhibitions and seeing what they're doing and, just, and stealing with pride. If they do something useful, can we uh, can we nick it? Can we uh, rebadge it for, for uh, a science fiction convention? Absolutely. Stealing stuff is always always a good plan. All right, so moving on from that, we'll, we'll drop into our second topic, we're we're recording this on the the 16th of October, and the one thing that's dropped this evening, and I'm incredibly excited about, and I'm obviously I'm holding off because uh, I'm here, I'm I'm working on the show, is that today Star Trek Discovery dropped on Netflix. Now this is season three of Star Trek Discovery. It kind of is a little bit of a a, a weather vane for me, and that uh, because I've I've enjoyed Star Trek Discovery, it's a little different to you know to some of the other Star Treks, and I know some people have not enjoyed it as much. But one of the things about it is that because you're going back to a TV series that you've watched different seasons of, it kind of reminds you of where you were when you watched the last season. So yeah, it's it's a little bit of a weather vane back to you know back to a year ago, back to to when the last season dropped. That is on, you know, at the moment has dropped today. So clearly fans of Star Trek Discovery will start to populate social media with with all sorts of, of different comments about whether they like it, whether they don't like it. We've also had recently on Sky Brave New World, which has been a, you know, a, a, certainly a high budget undertaking of transferring Aldous Huxley's novel to a, a kind of small screen format over a, a extended television series that goes from you know the beginning of the kind of society and then you know how it how it falls apart it has a certainly has a, a modern take to it in terms of the way in which it's there and then we've had Lovecraft Country which blends together the set of works inspired by HP Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos but also inspired by the well-known and well-documented ideas around his racism you know the fact that as a writer he was was a racist man the racism is kind of part of the setting in Lovecraft Country in that you know they are very much exploring racism as a theme in mid-20th century America connected to you know to the Lovecraft mythos so it it really does create a very different spin on Lovecraft and it very much addresses you know all of the themes head-on in terms of of what's there now going forward we've got foundation is coming out soon you know we've we've heard about that we've got all sorts of shows appear to be you know coming to the small screen for different things and it it just strikes me kevin that we've got 
you know, an abundance of riches here of of many, many things that already have audiences, already have, you know, sort of connected audiences through some of the literature appear to be very popular to be made into to different television and, and possibly different films. Yeah, it is interesting. I'm, I was born in 64. I'm basically old enough to remember the actual moon landings. Uh, I remember being interrupted and playing Lego by the news of the Apollo 13 uh, explosion. And it was the case that a lot, of, um, a lot of science fiction being produced in the early 70s, mid-70s, which I think was inspired by the, the, the moon landings and the whole space race. I also noticed recently, having been a big aficionado of the space program and space development, it's been galling how, how little development there was in that area um, since, uh, since the 70s. Uh, suddenly recently with, with Elon Musk in his SpaceX program, with um, Jeff Bezos's new, new Shepard, new, new Glenn, Things seem to be kicking off again. I'm wondering if that's a coincidence uh, that we're now seeing science fiction becoming a bit more mainstream. Perhaps it's a reaction to the uncertainty and turmoil that we're, we've been seeing over the last five or six years. Perhaps there's a understanding that technology does have a, well, you like it or no, it does have a massive role to play in our world. And we do need to, to investigate the role of technology and also embrace technology to to uh, solve some of the problems we're facing. So yeah, it has been an absolute renaissance, both in space development and science fiction. I never thought I'd see a uh, foundation put on the screen. I've got to confess, I'm, I don't have my hopes up. I don't think it's a, it's a particularly visual story. While it's absolutely brilliant, it's not character-led. Older, older, I think Asimov um, bash stuff out very quickly, and the characters are really just vehicles for the plot. Yeah, I, I, I shall certainly watch it. I shall, I shall uh, watch it very carefully. But I, I've not got my hopes up. But you are right. There, there does seem to have been a, a massive uh, development in visual science fiction recently. I think that that theme that you're talking about, about the interest in space exploration, I mean, that's obviously one theme of, of what we're talking about here. And that certainly... I think it helps when NASA is talking about Mars, whether that comes to fruition or not. But the very fact that they're talking about Mars makes people start to, you know, to sort of explore stories about the solar system and about the near future of what's there. It certainly inspired me. And, you know, Andy Weir, obviously, you know, his work is incredibly popular because it, it sits in that niche of where it could be what we experience. It could be something, you know, close to where we end up. So we could see it in our lifetimes, you know, it's it's possible that that could happen. So yeah, so it is interesting that that's there. I think, you know, there, there's certainly the fidelity of media platforms has enabled some of these stories to be told and for the imagery that's being described to be given a treatment that that people feel is realistic so you know that's part of the driver of stuff but talking about asimov i mean i've just finished the biography that james gunn wrote about him and it's fascinating you know because i, I you know I, I, i'm inspired and i grew up reading asimov and you know and i've read uh, as much of his work as i possibly could but the the interesting thing of course is that foundation was written when he was in his 20s so you know he was he was a really really young writer and as you say it's not character led i have a feeling that the the television treatment is going to be very different i i feel that they're they're going to be doing quite a lot of lindelof style or uh you know sort of treatments of it in the, the writer adapter the person who is adapting the, the text is going to be putting a fair amount of their own work into it. Lots of extensions on the uh, Asimov mansion. Yes, and, and and lots of lots of different characters. You know, I, I do think it's going to be more character driven. I think television lends itself to to that. So so yeah. So you know, it will be interesting to see in terms of uh, of what's there. Asimov's one of the very few people who actually I did um, uh, give a little bit of dismissal recently. Perhaps I should uh, redeem myself by. Uh, if you think about the Dewey system for classifying library books, there's 10 broad categories. And I think that's one of the very few people that's had books published in every category. But he really did cut across the sciences and the arts. 
foundations from a few pieces of science fiction that really looks sociological side of the moment. In what directions could sociology go in the future? Yeah, his um, fictional subject of psychohistory, but predicting grand movements in the future and what will happen to society and so on. And that's that with you know data analytics and so on and uh, uh, manipulation of the votes goes on. It, it's more relevant than ever. It's, it's a case of uh, us us. Um, trying to find our way through this muddled mess that the 21st century has become. And we certainly find Isaac Asimov waiting there for us with a, a grin on his face, I think. He, he didn't understand that he can't ignore society. Yeah, there's, I mean, there are, there are different treatments of, of those themes. I mean, I, I recently watched Westworld, and I know that there are some that didn't like the, uh, the last season of Westworld. I thought it was the best season. You know, I thought it was very much a, a kind of a new take on Blade Runner in that uh, essentially it felt like it was Blade Runner before Blade Runner. You know, it was the, the civilization that fell that then became the, you know, the, the civilization that Harrison Ford's character ended up working in. So it very much felt like that. But there were also themes in it that totally you, you kind of go, that's straight out of, you know, it's a modern interpretation of, of Asimov's future prediction. And it's something that, you know, that I'm, I'm working in, in that um, I've got some themes in, in, you know, in the novels I'm writing where I'm thinking about some of these big ideas and how, how you can think about them with, with modern technology, because obviously our world has, has kind of changed. And so, yes, he's, he's kind of waiting for us, but he might be in a bit of a battered jacket, you know, because some of his ideas are absolutely current and, you know, and relevant to us, but they perhaps utilize technology that, that hasn't come to pass. And we now have technology that he didn't envisage. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think there's, there's a lot there. And it's, it's certainly interesting that, that science fiction is such a rich vein for people to draw from at the moment. Yeah, come back to Margaret Atman. Early on in her career, she dismissed the whole genre, saying, "Oh, it's 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 just lasers and robots." And uh, I think if you read a little bit about some of the vast majority of good science fiction writers, you'll discover it's much much more science fiction is a genre that, um, if the world's television set, uh, science fiction would be where you take the back off and fiddle with things to see how it works and what changes you could make and. Uh, you can say something about our current society by making one change and maybe showing how uh, how that would happen. I haven't seen the current series of Brave New World, but uh, that has several themes that are directly relevant to our modern world and the idea of people being different and how do we handle that as a society. Yeah, it very much the, the television series very much focuses on it feels like A-level sociology in that, you know, it's, it's talking about kind of a functionalist society versus a, a conflict-based society. And you do very much feel that those two themes are, you know, are being explored and how one kind of affects the other. So, so certainly, and, and it's interesting to think that an audience would engage with a drama that sort of attempts to tackle those kind of subjects. You know, that's that's fascinating to me. I mean, I, you know, we'll see how successful it was, but I certainly found it very entertaining. There are certain elements to it you kind of go, okay, really? It's quite a lot of nudity, which um, uh, <laughs> you you do kind of get a little bit desensitized to some of that as things uh, move on. But um, yeah, it certainly was interesting. I wouldn't watch it with my parents then. So yeah, because I haven't seen it, can you just uh, let me know the... In the, the book, there are uh, five effective cases, the alphas, betas, gammas, deltas, epsilons. Uh, alphas are the um, highest thinkers who get all the, the managerial and scientists and engineer and level jobs, and they've been genetically engineered or edited to be brilliant and so on, and down to the um, epsilons who are sort of um, porters and lift operators, and they've been genetically engineered, you know, alcohol put in their blood surrogates to uh, make them dull and, and stupid. And the idea is to, to build a society that's, that's really stable. It comes up uh, a period of, uh, there's been a terrible war. People have decided, so, uh, looked at things. Like, right, the problem is 
human beings don't fit in a perfect society. How can we redesign human beings to fit that perfect society? And they've pretty much done it. Is that the, uh, the theme of the TV series? Yeah, it's yeah, it's basically the same theme. What they've done is they've hidden some of the origin elements behind a little bit of mythology. So that's kind of um, obscured a little bit. But you know that there were some original human beings. One of them is a character in the you know in the series, and there are hints as to what that was before. And it feels a little bit the sort of the origin story. If you don't know the book, the origin story feels a little bit like the origin story of the Matrix, in that you've got a an AI that is driving some of the the sort of changes in society, but also the stability of society, and is is attempting to you know to learn from all the experiences that humans have, and is somewhat restless. But yeah, all the structures, you know, the different hierarchies, the rigid structures, the savage lands is something that they obviously yeah. then explore, and they they end up bringing back a savage, and of course the the savage changes the way things are. I'm showing my age here. I did Breaking World for O level, the thing, the exams that were in place before GCSEs back in the uh, early 80s. And uh, my uh, tutor was saying that John the Savage represented us. We saw his conflicts with uh, people of this modern society as, as us versus this human uh, man. And John the Savage got hold of a copy of the complete works of Shakespeare and kept quoting it at uh, people. Shakespeare's meant to represents every man he had. John the Savage had access to a positive version of humanity. So I'm not sure if they kept on with the Shakespeare uh, aspect. Yeah, the, the, the Shakespeare elements sort of toned down a little bit. But yes, it, it's absolutely, it's doing exactly that. That's, you know, that's the design of it. It's certainly interesting because by having that character as as your perspective and by that character coming from what's known as the Savage Land, which when you see what the Savage Land is like, it's basically your old life. It's it's like a sort of a, a rundown version of contemporary society. Then yeah, it's that's that is the parallel. They're you know, they're exactly going to that. So yeah, I think I think they preserved a lot of the themes. I'm not sure Huxley described as much nudity as uh, as we get in the series. I think he probably took things as in erotic a direction as he could in the 1930s. So he still had a theatre censorship at the time. He had to have plays approved by the House of Lords. So yeah, Huxley um, opened things up quite a bit. Well, I remember discussing with my English students saying, "Well, actually, I, I don't, we we say that um, this modern society is is terrible. People." Are, the words mother and father have become dirty words. People shudder at the sight of a, a child breastfeeding from its mother. Children are conditioned not to like flowers and, and nature because I make them unproductive. But I look at this whole society, and in the, the society of Brave New World, there's no war, there's no famine, everybody's employed, everybody's um, having a very interesting party, so the, the word orgy gets used quite a bit. Uh, there's some safe recreational drugs, uh, uh, completely legal. In many ways, it's quite a pleasant society, and uh, I actually wouldn't mind living there myself. I actually raised this point with my tutor, and he said, oh, well, well done, Kevin, I'm sure all the stuff he's having is cloud and smiling down at you, because that's the sort of uh, thought that he was trying to get people to, to make. So I don't know if, I was, if he was right there. I did okay at English. So... Um, yeah, I do think Huxley is asking us to question the values in our societies. What do we mean by freedom? Do we mean freedom to go out and mug someone or the freedom from being mugged? So, um, yeah, you're giving up some freedom to, you're getting lots and lots of freedom from. And if, you know, like me, my, my uh, idea of a good evening is a, a good book and a cup of tea. That's what I like. And if a society can provide that for me, and it's not that bad a society. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think the TV series doesn't quite make that part as clear cut. But um, yeah, you're absolutely right. It, you know, it, it, it certainly is a, a question mark over, over what freedom is. Um, and it probably in the book, it's probably a little clearer in terms of the presentation of that message. I, I don't think it's quite as clearly handled 
um, in the, the TV series. But anyway, it's certainly interesting. And um, if any listeners out there are, are interested in, in taking a look at any of these, then they're available on, on the variety of subscription services. As I say, I'm looking forward to Star Trek Discovery. It will you know, be interesting to, to sort of see how that, that goes over the next few weeks. But Brave New World is out on Sky. Lovecraft Country is out on Sky. Westworld, I think, is still available uh, on Sky at the moment. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Margaret Atwood. Uh, Handmaid's Tale is obviously is, is another. So, there, you know, there's such a, a rich vein of, of science fiction out there at the moment. And, and certainly be interesting to, you know, to see how, how long this continues. All right. So for the moment, then, we're going to head to an advert break. So join us on the other side and we'll be starting off with Kevin's book choice. See you in a minute. The Federal Navy. We want you for Adventures Unlimited. Just last week, I was mixing Sidewinder Slammers at a seedy space bar. I wasn't even pilot registered. And now I have a ship and a basic starting mission for the Federal Navy. Owing to recent actions in the Lave region, the Federal Navy now seeks to recruit another 1,000 entry-level pilots. We need you to add your strength to our military machine. I'm going to see the galaxy. We have missions for all pilots, regardless of combat experience or flight hours. Come and talk to us and we'll get you on the military ladder. Join the Federal Navy. Make a real pilot of yourself. Or die trying. Wait, what's that? Is that is that a ship coming? Are they looking for me? What do they? You've flown ships at max speed. You've felt the power of the 30 megawatt mining laser. You've experienced the efficiency of the MB4 mining machine. Wow. But it leaves every hardcore miner with just one question. Why can't I get a shave that's that fast, close and efficient? Introducing the Saracen MB5 shaving drone. It's so smooth. Combining the power of a mining laser with the convenience of a drone. It's like every hair is targeted by a fighter and destroyed. Saracen's patented shaving drone attaches to your face at the start of the day. Leave it to do its work, and when you come back to check, your face is shaved. He's so smooth. It's like I'm mining my face. The Saracen MB5 shaving drone. Now I feel manly. Saracen shaving. Making shaving an unnecessary adventure. And we're back. Okay, we're going to move on to our book choices for this evening. Now, Kevin, what have you been reading? I've read The um, Fated Sky by Mary Robinette Cole. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that properly, but uh, it's the sequel to The Calculating Stars, which won the uh, Best Novel Hugo Award in 2019, awarded in Dublin. And yeah, what can I say about it? I've got to say, Hugo Awards are obviously the most prestigious science fiction award out there, but I was a little disappointed when I came away from this thinking, my God, that one of Hugo? So a little little strange there. It's highly competent. It's gripping. It's entertaining. In sociological terms, it's excellent. It basically deals with 1950s, 1960s society various reasons people are forced to develop a space program really quickly. Part of the um, idea behind this is, is that uh, you know, women turn out to be uh, brilliant calculators and uh, they have to employ some women as astronauts, even though the, the society maybe hasn't moved on so much. So there's, uh, people are still thinking of women as should be wives and do the baking and here they are on spaceships doing all the calculations. Uh, because they haven't got computers yet. So that bit is wonderful. But somehow I, I felt it didn't gel together. To an extent, it's really unrealistic. There's a scenario where a comet powers into the Earth and does massive damage, and it upsets the atmosphere, sets global warming off, and uh, they've got to build a moon colony and a Mars colony to save some people. This would mean that yeah, billions die. It doesn't seem to be quite the uh, the right panic and terror that I, I would see. It felt a little contrived. I, I just felt that, to an extent, we have a female lead. She's very well written. 
if I said housewives in space, that's being glossy and fair. We have a quite an interestingly flawed character. The, uh, the main character has to take antidepressants at times and manages to uh, get on the mission there. This mission to Mars that the uh, Fated Sky deals with is um, funded by people from all over the world. So we have a real mix on there. We have someone from pre-apartheid South Africa who flatly refuses to have anything to do with any of the black astronauts. There's a fascinating tension there. Same time, I, I don't know, I just, there was something missing. Some sort of the, the tension seemed quite um, abstract and, and artificial at times, as if some, uh, the, the author just said, oh, let's put this together and that together and, and let, let's watch them fight rather than letting the plot come organically. Also, and this is, this is more Kevin speaking than anything else, the technology is recognisably 50s and 60s, which has been pressed into to service to get to the moon, build a moon base, go to Mars and so on. So there's, there's very uh, gripping scenes where it goes wrong and people get hurt and even killed. At the same time, I wanted, the reason I read science fiction is to have some inkling of what's going to happen in the future, what sort of technology will emerge. Looking at these sort of pre-Apollo esque spaceships um, getting themselves to Mars. It's a bit like um, going to a computer museum. It's, it's, it's fascinating, but I'm sort of missing the uh, useful, how would I use this uh, feel that comes across when I'm, I'm looking at something cutting edge. So yeah, uh, I find that I, I think I'm, I'm going to write a review on it and put it on my uh, website, but um, I'm struggling to only what to give it, and it's somewhere between three, three and a half stars at the moment out of five. Yeah, uh, competent, but a little disappointing, and I'm, I'm wondering why one of you go. There's one or two themes there that I'd kind of suggest that, you know, that explored some of those themes. So, for example, where you were talking about the conflict between the characters or the kind of motley crew of characters that's put yeah. together, um, it does sound a little like... When Arthur C. Clarke started working on sequels to Rendezvous with Rama with Gentry Lee, there was a little bit of a motley crew of people, you know, in terms of who they sent up in the second spaceship. And there was a, a little bit of a conflict and a falling out. And on a reread, I mean, I, I loved those books when I first read them. And then I, I had to choose some books to review or to critique for an English literature uh, A-level piece of coursework. And um, I chose those and I realized that actually they weren't as good as I thought they were. Um, <laughs> so do you think there's there's a certain amount with what you were saying about contrivance? Do you think it's a certain amount of attempting to inject conflict through through having characters who are, you know, not necessarily ever going to get on? Yeah, I know in the Apollo missions, you had three men, you know, very small capsule. Uh, so they uh, did do bevy of psychological tests to make sure they could at least uh, get on for a week or however long it was in a tin can. Even if you've got pre-end of apartheid South Africa in the mix, you're going to be careful and get someone who can uh, at least get on. This is a, a multi-million pound mission, multi, yeah, billion pound mission on which the uh, fate of the Earth and humanity depends. So I, I just felt it's, it's a conflict created artificially just to as a writer, I'm told to put conflict and tension in a novel, and that's great. But I think it's got to arise organically from where people are, their setting, who they meet, and so on, and, and just artificially uh, putting puppets in there and getting to box each other is less, uh, less entertaining. Yeah, I, I think I can see what you mean in terms of what... Uh, um, the, the other thing I was sort of thinking about was what you were saying about the traditional kind of science fiction grab is imagining our future and when a you know when a writer does it really well what they essentially what they do is they they build on a robust sense of where our technology is now and they basically cast a little way into the future and they then create a you know a new kind of moment which is the moment of their narrative that bridge between the moment in their novel and the moment where we are is a sort of an instigator for a child's imagination. It kind of makes us dream a little bit. 
and there's nothing wrong you know i i, I when i say a child's imagination i i make nothing wrong with with an adult maintaining that you know that 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 sort of engagement with a with a book it's possible then that because this is casting back and is casting back into a period that you're pretty familiar with you know and actually other you know in terms of us knowing the history you know most people can look on wikipedia or or look on you know look on the internet and find out information about the the history or they've seen a documentary on it or something else if you're casting back into that period it's quite a difficult thing to kind of evoke the same kind of imaginative identification yeah there's less of the awe factor and uh, we want to see a cavalcade of imagination and new technologies and so on so we talked about arthur c Clarke's drama sequels and i agree with you that i, I was actually bitterly disappointed by the sequels again i thought that the conflict was artificial but i love the technology the little uh, the shakespeare that that rolls around uh, mucks about with things and made to do various stunts was, was just glorious and uh, some of the biological features of the, uh, the spider creatures was great clark was in terms of technology firing all cylinders and uh, his i think his knowledge of engineering was brought into such great planes and like the fountains of paradise where you had uh, people building the world's first space elevator clark sort of led with technology uh, this is a personal thing. This is Radio Kevin speaking here, but I was disappointed, shall we say. It's like wanting to go to some high-tech exhibition and where the science one end up in some computer museum. Hmm. No, I, I think, I mean, I think that's, you know, obviously that's the, that's the takeaway that you had from it. it. It's interesting in that I recently, one of my experiences of reading a, a Hugo-nominated novel was, or one of my first experiences of reading a Hugo-nominated novel was Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie. And I loved that novel. And the reason I loved it was, actually, I didn't get on with it to start with. I found the, you know, the address quite, quite tricky. But then as I got into it, I realized the character who she was, she was focusing on was so strange, so different to me. And there's a moment in the novel about sort of two-thirds of the way through where she flips it round so that that character suddenly is deprived of its strange status, the status that's different to mine, and suddenly becomes the same as you and I. But I experienced loss, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it, it let me know that she'd done her job, you know, because the character was suddenly as reduced as a normal human being, you know, as, as I am as an individual, as you are as an individual. It didn't have the ability to share minds with a vast array of different individuals. It wasn't a group consciousness. It was suddenly trapped in one body. And at the moment when it was trapped in one body, I felt lost. And that said to me that this writer has done incredibly well at setting this up. So I guess that sort of is perhaps missing from your experience of, uh, of this. Yeah, there's a scene at the start of the Fated Sky where some uh, Drake Freedom fighters intercept a shuttle heading from the uh, moon's worth, make it crash in a certain uh, area and try to hold the uh, crew to ransom. Their, their demand is that you should be spending more money on Earth and not on space. Uh, with the situation that um, if they don't do this, if they don't spend money on space, everybody's going to die. It sort of just comes over a bit weird. But she does make some very good points. There's some nice interplay of um, the 1950s housewife who, who is saying, well, why should I do cooking all the time? Why should I uh, just be a, a servant and an assistant? And there's some uh, black people, again, questioning the uh, racism. And there's talk about how most of the people chosen for this space program are, are white and not necessarily overt racism there. It's just that. They're choosing physics and engineering PhDs and so on, who, because of the um, American society, all tend to be white. So that's actually brought over quite well. Some of the sociological infrastructure is depicted very well, and it is great to see a female heroine. It's a real breath of fresh air. And I suppose as well the, the fact that those themes are uh, addressed head on, that they're tackled. Maybe if something was using characters from that period and was written at that time they wouldn't be tackled so the fact yeah. that they you know those themes are being tackled is obviously is a positive 
Absolutely, yeah. Shall we say I'm glad to have read it? It's sort of extended my repertoire of ideas. Like the main character in my novel is a female. Why should I chose that because there'd be tension between her and a patriarchal society. But I just needed more. It does tend to dock some of the issues and some of the sexism that I felt could have been brought to sharper relief. Okay, so that's The Fated Sky. It's by Mary Robinette Cowell, and uh, it's available in, in, in most bookshops in uh, most formats and up on Amazon. We'll be posting some of the links in the show notes on the website when, uh, when this, this podcast airs. Now, it's the sequel to The Calculated Stars, isn't it? So um, it is the second in a series, so it might be that you need to read the first one. Do you think you need to read the first one, Kevin? Not exactly. You know, she does a very good job of covering the background of society. The first one's really, I would say the first one's, if anything, slightly stronger. It does deal with a transition from early 1950s society, and it does share some of the disruption that would cause a chance social change. The Fated Sky doesn't maybe grab hold of those opportunities. Okay, so that's The Fated Sky. Now, um, over to what I've been reading. Um, now, this was interesting. So... I made a decision to read this during uh, sort of the middle of the year, actually, in that when I was presenting the British Science Fiction Awards, this was the winner of the best novella. And so it's This Is How You Lose the Time War, and it's by Amel El Motar and Max Gladstone. Now, when I was presenting that, when I was dealing with the, the stuff to, to do with it, everybody talked about it. Everybody talked about this book. And it was so interesting to hear everybody talking about it. And I thought, well, you know, I'm up for reading some things. And, and then I happened to, to need to do a little bit of uh, driving to work as part of uh, going back to, to university and doing some teaching. So I got it on Audible, and um, I can you know, listen to it in the car on the way to work and on the way home. And quite a lot of the time, I'm going in very early in the morning, so it's quite quiet. So it's, it's quite a nice thing to kind of have. Now, the interesting thing about this is that, firstly, the title. I don't know about you, Kevin, but as far as I'm concerned, when I read the title, I assumed that there was some sort of, not connection, not that it would be part of the same fiction, but there was some sort of inspiration from Doctor Who. I assume that it, it would have some kind of similar sense to Doctor Who in terms, of, in terms of the book, but it doesn't. It doesn't at all. It really, you know, if you were going in there from the title, then it, it really, you know, that's, that's not what this book is about. To give a little bit of the, the blurb uh, or some of the, the quotations from, uh, from Amazon where it's, where it's up, it does say here, this book has it all, treachery and love, lyricism and gritty action, existential crisis and space opera scope, not to mention time tabling, super agents, Gladstone's and El Motar's debut collaboration is a fireworks display from two talented story writers. So yeah, so there's you know there's quite a lot in here in terms of you know of what's there, and the awards list is you know is massive. So just to give you the blurb, among the ashes of a dying world, an agent of the commandant finds a letter. It reads, "Burn before reading." Thus begins an unlikely correspondence between two rival agents, hell bent on securing the best possible future for their warring factions. Now what began as a taunt battlefield boast grows into something more, something epic, something romantic, something that could change the past and the future. Except the discovery of their bond would mean death for each of them. There's still a war going on after all, and someone has to win that war. That's how war works, right? So yeah, so it is absolutely about time travel. It's about conflict between two sides. By having two writers, you can pretty much see where the join is. You've got red is one character, blue is the other character. Yes, red versus blue. And you can pretty much tell that you know, one writer has probably written red and one writer has written blue in terms of uh, you know, the correspondence. So you have letters going back and forth between these two characters who represent these two different sides. And they represent sides that are very much part of the tradition of 
contemporary science fiction quite a lot of contemporary science fiction when it's attempting to kind of do something new it looks to future technology that's quite a way beyond our state so it looks to the the kind of where we think things are going to go all the way to the end so either we're going to end up kind of you know enhanced by being by taming genetics and by taming biology and so we end up as like sort of grown creatures or we're going to end up as some sort of nanotech that is you know, miniaturization of computer components and uh, and such like. So so kind of almost machine oriented, machine built, uh, machine living, uh, shaped by machines within our society. So you've got two factions that that roughly have have kind of parallels between those two points. Although the commandant is not quite you know that. Although Garden, which is the other side. Is very definitely nature biod, you know, he's, he's very much sort of growths of different types of creature and so on and so forth. The correspondence, I think the best way to describe it, it's beautifully written. You know, it is beautifully written. The vividness, the imagery, the the detail of the writing is incredibly, you know, the prose is very beautiful. And I can I can appreciate that. You know, you do have very clear tones as well. The voices of characters from Garden are incredibly prosaic. You know, they are very uh, rich with all the imagery you could you could possibly bring in. And then the Commandant characters are a little bit more authoritarian, a little bit more straightforward. But the plots are fiendish. The ways in which these two manage to smuggle letters to each other, despite the fact that their factions are watching them, and are trying to check to see whether they've lost their loyalty or whether they've been compromised or corrupted. And they're having a, a battle across time. So they are continually talking about different threads of different timelines that they are both attempting to tweak for their respective side. So you get these moments where we're in recognizable historical periods and then these moments where we're in completely you know sort of surreal locations that have very little connection to to our world so it it yeah it's it's incredibly incredibly vast in terms of the you know the the picture it's painting and it paints it by making it small by making it the diary the writing of of two individuals as they talk to each other so yeah, it's it's very different. I think would be probably how I'd summarise it. Well, that's great, Alan. Greatly enjoyed it. I've brought it up, so uh, I shall look at buying that and slot it into my uh, reading list. It's always good to have a recommendation. Can you just talk briefly about the planning that you think has gone in? in you, you, the time travel stories always uh, leave me um, sweating. I, I think there must be so much uh, work going into constructing this framework that you you bulk the story into. Do you think they've really uh, planned things out beforehand? I think actually what they've done is that they've done it in such a way as they've kind of sidestepped that problem. Because, yeah, let's take the old perennial, the obvious example. When you deal with something like Back to the Future, what you're doing is you're attempting to ensure that you've got a, a narrative thread that you can then drop into and drop out of and make changes and adjustments. And then you can track those adjustments and come back and kind of... So the thread becomes more and more complex based on the ways in which you utilize time travel to interact with it. Whereas in this, essentially the time war is the backdrop. So the scenes and the moments that they're in are seemingly unconnected in and of themselves. You don't necessarily see direct links between the moments that they find themselves in because the time war is so vast and they are, you know, two individuals caught up in a vast array of minute changes in that, you know, they're agents who are amongst hundreds of other agents who are making all these changes across an array of different realities because there's an array of different threads of time. They're making all these changes across all these different iterations and you get the sense that there is a um you know everything does hang together that it that it has all been thought about in terms of what's there but it isn't part of the immediacy of the narrative 
the immediacy of the narrative is the relationship between red and blue and whether that relationship is discovered by their superiors and if it is discovered whether their superiors are trying to make use of it because you're still all the way through wondering whether red is going to corrupt blue or blue is going to corrupt red or something else is going to happen and even the characters themselves they're reminiscing on the idea of are you trying to change me have i been changed by you i feel changed did you intend for your influence to change me and you know and and that is happening on both sides in terms of the way in which they look at the universe the way in which they look at their own agendas the way in which they think their think about their own loyalty so it's incredibly interesting in terms of what it does. I, I think as an exercise in kind of literature, it is definitely science fiction literature, if that makes sense. The plot does not have primacy in what's going on here. The nature of the characters, the relationship between the characters, it, you know, you could think of it as as like a, an Austin correspondence novel on on sort of steroids or on 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 acid. Yeah, an Austin correspondence novel on acid is probably the best way to to kind of describe it because you've got this kind of this very intimate nature of the way in which these two characters are talking to each other but there is this incredibly vivid element of how they describe things and the locations and places that they're describing are just you know they're just surreal and out of this world so it is yeah incredibly uh, rich and, and and it's only a novella, you know, which which is really surprising. I remember having a chat with Adrian Tchaikovsky, who I think is a superb author. I read one of his works, what was it, Iron Trance, which was a novella. And I thought he was the right length for uh, for that. It uh, would have suffered had it been bloated out to novel length. And I, I do think um, a lot of science fiction would benefit from being a novella length. It gives you room to explore the ideas, but. Uh, there's no room to, to leave any fluff in there. Do you want to talk briefly about the themes of the novel? You mentioned change for people um, and possibly talking about trying to hide knowledge from other people. Is, is, are those the, the most pertinent themes in the book or is there uh, another structure below that? Well, it, it's a love story mainly. These two characters are very much changed by each other. They are attracted to each other. And they, you know, they communicate their regard for each other. It is a very powerful love story in that regard. But you have to to kind of appreciate that the characters you're identifying with or you're listening to, you're connecting with, neither of them are human. You know, they are capable of a vast transformative change within themselves physically. And they are, you know, incredibly adept in relation to what they are doing you know the amount of knowledge and and physical power that they have which is is expressed in one or two scenes you know the one or two moments where they're either attacked or they are they attack others there are one or two moments where you know where where some of these things happen although those are again those are kind of not major themes of of the work but you find yourself you know, kind of connecting and identifying with these characters who are very, very different to human beings. But there is something, something kind of so appealing about how a creature of this kind of intelligence communicates its affection and communicates its adoration. And, and you know, those things are confessional within this story. They certainly feel confessional in terms of the way in which they talk to each other. They, you know, they absolutely, if you think about those kind of personal correspondences that, you know, maybe maybe you might have read, um, if you've read Letters of Note, for example, the, you know, the incredible book of, of letters of, um, you know, from all, all sort of different types of history. There are some incredibly personal accounts in, in those books. And this feels incredibly personal but it's about weird future space aliens who time travel, you know? <laughs> I'll definitely get this on my reading list, Alan. Can you give us a number of stars out of five if you want to? Um, I don't tend to ever review anything with stars, to be honest. Um, I don't tend to, to ever give anything a, a star rating because I think that kind of makes people think about it as just the star rating as opposed to the themes. I'd say it's worth reading. And I would say that, 
you know, if you're looking to read something that's kind of transformative in terms of how a character is put across in a first-person narrative through letters, and if you're looking to read something that shows how to use imagery within within that kind of writing structure, then it's it's incredible. It's certainly something I would use with students if I was trying to show students how to write in the genre in a in a different way then it would be something I'd, I'd show them. It wouldn't be something I'd show first-year students because they have uh, a tendency to be a little bit too obsessed with their vocabulary as it is. So they, you know, they will often put far too many words in when, you know, when fewer words could do. But it's something that third-year students, graduate students, MA students, I definitely say would, would find incredibly inspiring and formative. You know, because I think it would help any writer to read this. Excellent. Thank you very much for that, Alan. Um, that's definitely a reading list. Great. Okay. So that brings us to the end for today. So that's the full episode of Data Slate. So we're finished with Data Slate episode 18. So if you've enjoyed listening to our conversation about either of these books, you can pick them up from all the, you know, the major retail places. This is how you lose the time war is available on Amazon just as the Fated Sky is also available up there. You can you can find it and search for it. And we'll provide links uh, on the show notes when we post up the episode. So if you'd like to get in touch with the show, then you can email chair at bsfa.co.uk. Uh, that gets through to me directly. If you put the subject heading data slate on that, then I'll know exactly what you're talking about. And obviously, I can talk about the show. Alternatively, you can contact us through the Lave Radio email, which is info at laveradio.com. If you'd like to learn more about Kevin's novel, Lightmaker, then you can find it on Amazon by clicking on the link in the show description. Or you can do a quick search for Lightmaker or for Kevin Elliott. Both of those do get you there, although there are a few Kevin Elliott's on Amazon. So Kevin Elliott, Lightmaker might be the best way to go. So it's available in paperback and ebook. And if you'd like to read more of Kevin's blog, you can find it at https colon slash slash Kevin Elliott, all one word with two T's, dot space. That will get you to Where's My Flipping Tea? Okay, space adventurers, fantasy questers, and ghost hunters, we will see you next time. Take care of yourselves and happy reading. Mm-hmm.